0: Hello and welcome to The Five By. This episode we've got a wide array of games for you. Christy battles on a grid with Summoner Wars 2nd Edition. Sarah gets introspective with Mud, a Golem Memoir. Luke puts his mask back on in Cuzco. Ruel races dice in Cubitos, and I try to be clever with So Clover.
1: Every year in the cube-shaped world of Cubitos, the citizens host the Cube Cup, a competition to determine the Cubitos champion. Runners race around the track with the help of their support team, hoping to push their luck and win the coveted prize. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Cubitos by John D. Clare, with art by Banu Andaru, Felicia Cano, Jackie Davis, Kelly Fitzgerald, and Ryan Eiler. Cubitos was published in 2020 by AEG, who sent me a copy. In Cubitos, 2-4 to four players attempt to cross the finish line first, through the use of dice, dice, and more dice. Each player has a cube-shaped runner on the main track, and are moved around by their support team, which is made up of a fistful of starting dice. Each round is played in two phases, the roll phase and the run phase. During the roll phase, players simultaneously roll their dice and move any hits into their active zone. If all of their dice show blank faces, they have busted and discard their dice. Otherwise, they decide to pass and end their roll phase, or push their luck and re-roll their blank dice. After everyone has passed or busted, the run phase begins and each player resolves their dice. Depending on the dice abilities they've selected for the game, they can move their runner, buy new dice for their support team, or use any abilities that they've triggered. The first player to cross the finish line wins! If two or more players end up on the same space after crossing, then everyone plays another round until there is only one winner. Let's cut to the chase. I love Kubitos. I'm a sucker for any game that has me rolling lots of dice, hello, Roll for the Galaxy and Pandemic the Cure, and Kubitos has a ton of those six-sided cubes of awesomeness. The bag building and push-your-luck mechanisms remind me so much of the Quacks of Quidlinburg that whenever I introduce Kubitos to my gaming friends, I call it Quacks the Dice Game. It's much more than that, though. It's a satisfying mix of dice chucking, push-your-luck, and bag building that instantly became one of my favorite racing games. The simultaneous play ensures a quick and snappy turn throughout the game, and there are plenty of catch-up mechanisms when the dice aren't rolling your way. For instance, when you bust, you'll move up on a separate fan track and gain bonuses such as additional currency or dice. I love this thematic touch, because fans really love rooting for that underdog. And the runaway leader problem is dealt with neatly in Kubitos. At the end of each turn, if the leader is one or more areas ahead of everyone else, then those players receive additional dice. So, if Lauren is leading Bruno by one area, Bruno will receive one extra die on his next turn. For those new to bag or dice building, but are familiar with deck building, there are similar concepts in play here. Everyone starts with the same basic dice, offering currency and movement. As you spend money to add to your support team in the form of the different dice, you'll have better options for spending and moving. You'll also have opportunities on the board to remove your weaker dice, so that by the final turn, you should be able to generate enough movement to propel yourself past that finish line. Like any good deck builder, you can focus on generating currency early to afford the more expensive and powerful dice, and then switch mid-game to dice that are primarily about movement. While I feel Kubitos is ripe for expansions, there is a lot of replayability in the game. In addition to everyone's great starting dice, there are 8 different dice that you can add to your rolls. Each die has seven different abilities, and you'll choose one for each game. My favorite are the red dice, since you'll be comparing results to other players. Usually, whoever rolls the most symbols on the red dice will gain something the others can't. There's a suggested list of dice to use for your first game, along with other dice combos that offer different experiences. There are also two double-sided racetracks that you can use. I love that Kubitos has a champion tour list that allows you to play with every single one of those 56 abilities and four racetracks over a seven-race campaign. The game's only faults have nothing to do with gameplay. While the artwork is quirky and fun, at first I wasn't too sure of the SpongeBob SquarePants-style character on the box cover. It just didn't appeal to me. And those dice boxes or trays were such a pain to put together, even though they are thematic. Cubes and cubitos, get it? Thankfully, they're not needed to play. And the pun-laden dice names are sure to get some laughs from any group. I mean, who wouldn't laugh at Smelly Cat? Rollosaurus, Catastrophe, You Bet, Jurassican, Bahama Llama, Up to Eleven, or Piña, Cubelada? I'm only sad I didn't think of these names myself. John D. Clare continues to impress with his game designs and it's safe to say I'm fully on board the Clare hype train. His games Ecos, First Continent, Space Base, and Mystic Veil vale are some of my recent favorites and Kubitos is yet another outstanding title that will continue to hit the tabletop often. It's one of the best games I've played this year. Thanks to AEG for the copy of Kubitos. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A.
2: Over the last 10 years, I've learned just how broad and varied area control can be as a mechanism. It can encompass everything from wide, sprawling affairs like War for the Ring, to one-on-one god's-eye battles like Twilight Struggle, to tense political jockeying like Tammany Hall, to tactical knife-fight-in-a-phone-booth conflicts like El Grande. The maps over which players fight can remain static, a consistent battleground changed only by the conflicts sewn upon it, randomized setups that present players with new challenges each time they play, or evolving expansions players discover over the course of the game. Rarely, though, have I seen an area control game based around physically manipulating the map to your favor during play, and none executed as successfully as Cuzco. Cuzco has an odd history. Originally published as the second game in Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer's Mask Trilogy at the turn of the millennium, original European publisher Ravensburger inexplicably changed the setting from 13th century Incan Empire to the Indonesian island of Java. While not an earth-shattering change, it did make the publishing of the original Mask trilogy awkward, with Java being the only game in the series not set in Mesoamerica. All that changed in 2019 when the European publisher Supermeeple remade the game with its original theme, transporting it back to ancient northern Peru and giving it the same visual and tactile treatment as their other Mask Trilogy remakes of Mexica and Tikal. And oh my word, the game is so much better for it. In Cuzco, players take on the roles of Incan dignitaries cultivating the land to the north of the titular city, building new villages and farming terraces, and attracting new populace with temples and festivals. All of this is accomplished via Kiesling and Kramer's tried-and-true action point allocation system, where players are given six action points per turn to spend on placing terrain tiles, moving Inca about the board, building and expanding temples, building irrigation, and organizing festivals. Cuzco's initial board is a bit of a sprawl, comprising 150 hexes and three small ponds that will eventually be entirely covered not just by terrain tiles, but multiple terraces of terrain tiles. Looking at this board and the piles of tiles at the start of a game can be extremely intimidating for new players, but the designers built in an ingenious mechanism. For one action point, a player can place a one hex irrigation pond on the map. When the last surrounding tile is placed around a pond, the pond scores for the player who controls the area directly adjacent to the pond. At a very base level, this eases players into the game by giving them an early, easily achievable goal. Make a big pond, surround it, score points. Without formalizing it, this mechanism effectively splits the game into two phases. The early game where players are fighting for irrigation ponds, and the rest of the game where they're building cities and farms. This early phase performs brilliantly at introducing players to the primary thrust and probably the most unique feature of Cuzco's area control mechanism, elevation. As the game progresses, players will stack terrain tiles higher and higher, creating terraces, A block of hexes of the same type, regardless of elevation, make up either cities or farms, but control of those cities is determined by whoever's Inca occupies the highest physical position in the city, with other meeples used only to break ties, again by elevation. This is really what puts Cuzco in a class of its own. While it's relatively easy to move an Inca to the highest point in the city, it's also possible for other players to drop new tiles onto the board, expanding that city not only outward but upward to steal that vaunted position. This extended game of King of the Hill is really the crux of Cuzco's strategy, because only the person who controls a city can build or expand a temple there, or call for the organization of a festival, the two primary ways to score points. Building and expanding temples is just a straight point grab, scoring the builder half the value of the temple. But the player controlling a city can also organize a festival, where players play festival cards they've collected in an auction to score that city's temple. In any other game this might feel like a side quest, but collecting the cards and participating in festivals is one of the primary point scoring mechanisms, and all that terrain placement and jockeying is mostly just to get into position to either host or participate in a festival. When the last 3-hex terrain tile is placed, the player who placed it takes their last turn and does their grand final scoring. Each other player then gets one more turn to shift things around for themselves, performing their own grand final scoring at the end of their respective turns. This asynchronous scoring adds a neat little twist to the end of the game that genuinely makes all previous work in the game feel rewarding, and can tip the scales at the last second if your planning wasn't on point. Which brings me to the one true failing of Cuzco, and it's not really the fault of the game, but it has to be mentioned. It is an absolute analysis paralysis nightmare. Adding terrain and elevation to an already crowded tile placement scenario skyrockets the permutations a player has to calculate when figuring out their turn. A final board in Cuzco may contain over a dozen cities, all shifting and realigning during the course of play. Even I have trouble not APing over this one, and I tend to take pretty fast turns in most games. Aside from that, though... Cuzco is, unsurprisingly, a fantastic addition to Kiesling and Cromer's repertoire, and publisher Super Meeple's production makes it a stunning visual treat. If you like unique, mind-bending area control and can deal with a game taking longer than the box tells you it will because of the brains it breaks, you can't go wrong with Cuzco. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at pixelartmeeple, or on my website pixelartmeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming!
0: Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about So Clover. We love word games. I've covered several in the past on the show, some of which were new versions of old ideas, and some of which were new ideas in old formats, and some of which were just old. So Clover isn't exactly entirely a new idea, but I do think it might be the closest thing to a brand new word game I've played since Codenames. It's definitely a bit of a gimmick, don't get me wrong, but you know, I like gimmicks. It pretty cleverly uses physical components that make it difficult to proxy or play online. Now normally I would be extremely annoyed by this, but because the game is built around the gimmick component, and because it's not expensive, I quite like it. So the gimmick is a plastic green clover with four square posts on it. The leaves stick out to the side and they have a space for you to write your answer on them in dry erase marker. The posts hold little square cards with square holes cut out of the middle, they look like, unsurprisingly, a square donut. Each of the edges of the square donut has a different word written on it, so one card might have the words blanket, tractor, Sunday, aspirin, or something like that. They're all totally unrelated, although sometimes a card will have two words on it that are maybe connected conceptually, or various words that can be connected conceptually in a variety of ways. And part of the challenge of So Clover, as we'll see later, is exactly this. So every round, each player takes a plastic clover and puts four random cards in the four spaces. Each of these word pairs now has a blank leaf space above it for you to write the word that connects the two words on the cards together. Hopefully, one that makes enough sense so that someone else will be able to guess it in the second half of the round. Sometimes, a round of so Clover goes by incredibly quickly because, like magic, the four cards that you got and the eight outside words on them just sync up and make sense. For example, you have the words flame and instrument next to each other. You might write lighter above them. Or if the words were Ocean and animal. You might write shark or whale. But you have to be careful because there may be a word on one of the other cards on your board that will be confusing when the person next to you goes to decode your clover in the second half of the round. After you've written your four hopefully connecting words, you take the cards off the board, draw an additional card, shuffle them up, and then pass the cards on the board to the next person. We've been playing this two player, even though the box says three to six, but honestly, it's just so much fun that I don't care about winning or losing your points or what the actual rules are. Go look those up for yourself, that's not what we're talking about. So you've got in front of you now someone else's plastic clover with four words written on it and five cards. So it's your job in the second half of the round to decode what they've written using the cards as clues. Sometimes this is incredibly easy, because the words they had in the order they went in presented an obvious answer, or at least something that can obviously be decoded. One of your written words might be sky, S-K-Y. Um, now on its own, that's not much, but if you had a card each that had the words thunderstorm and open, it'd be a pretty good bet that that was the other player's intent. Sometimes you get stuck because there are just too many good answers, which is the purpose of drawing the fifth card. The person who wrote the answers hasn't seen the fifth card, remember, only you have. So they haven't attempted to correct for anything that might be on that card. So they might have written cookie, hoping that you'd pick the words oven and sweet. But if one of the words on the fifth card is chocolate, then it's going to throw their clue completely out of whack. So the very clever thing about So Clover, and I'm not even going to get into the fact that I think it's kind of a stupid name, it's neither here nor there, is that it's not just a word game, it's a spatial relationship word game. Sometimes, the best clues can help to buoy up the rotten clues you have to give if you can ensure that one side of a clue will be guessed correctly because of the corresponding word next to it on the other clue. We've played enough now that we've maybe sort of started gaming this a little, which I actually think makes it more fun for two players. So if there's one side of the Clover that I know Megan will absolutely get 100% correct, I can flub the other side of it, knowing that the inevitably correct answer will be put into place anyway. If you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know this is significantly more of a discussion of a game's mechanics than I usually go into. But I felt like because So Clover is sort of unlike any other game you've ever played, I have to talk about the physicality of the game really to talk about it at all. I think that Soul Clover probably has an equivalent life and replayability to Just One, uh, also from Repos and God Emperor Asmodee, though Soul Clover I think is significantly more complex. We've played Just One with a 7-year-old and a 90-year-old at the same table, and everyone had a good time and can play along. I'd hesitate to introduce Soul Clover to anyone under maybe 12, only because it requires so much more abstract thought than Just One. With Just One, you're picking a single word to describe a single concept. And in SoClover, you're picking four different words to try to link eight different concepts, and the degree of difficulty is just much higher. I'm also a little wary of playing this with anyone who has trouble writing, as the actual space available to write the clues is pretty limited, and the cards do kind of tend to fall over a little bit if you bump them while you're trying to write. So who should play so clover? People who like word games. People who like party games. People who liked just one but want something a little more difficult, and people who like to stare at two words for fifteen minutes, desperately trying to think of a way to link them together. I give So Clover four out of four leaf clovers of mind melting frustration and self congratulation. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost, and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core.
3: I don't really like the question, what is a game? I don't think that question generally leads to useful information. When I hear someone trying to classify things as a game or not a game, seems like it's usually part of some gatekeepery effort to build a wall of acceptability around games, quote-unquote, and position outside that wall anything too experimental, anything that plays too much with convention, or sometimes anything the person asking the question just doesn't like. But as much as I dislike that question, what is a game, I keep playing games that raise it and leave me thinking about it. Today's is Mud, a Golem Memoir. Designed by Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland, Mud, a Golem Memoir was published in 2021 by their company Turtle Bun Games. I got it from their Kickstarter campaign, but the game is available direct from the Turtle Bun website. Mud, A Golem Memoir is part RPG, part zine, part guided storytelling, part thought experiment. But what is it actually? It's a 36-page booklet with illustrations that tell the story of you, a clay golem, from your first moments of existence to the end of your life. A golem is an anthropomorphized creature from Jewish folklore, created from dust or clay or mud, and given life. You, the golem, wake up alone in the world— Explore your surroundings, travel, and meet people. The golem approaches life with a calm that seems appropriate for a creature made of Earth. Throughout the story, you ponder questions like, why have you been created? What are you there for? Can you be loved? The golem's steadiness seems so natural and is so reinforced by Evan Rowland's illustrations that the one moment when it acts out extreme emotion is truly shocking. The first page has blank spaces for you to write in three things about the golem. Your purpose, your dreams, and your claim to beauty. At various points of the story, you're asked to make choices which determine what you write in those spaces. You're also at times given prompts to do small tasks like close your eyes or find a small object and hold it in your hand. These tasks are optional, but doing them expands your choices at the end of the game. And whether or not you do them somewhat affects the way the story develops, although the outcome is more or less the same, no matter what choices you make. According to the creators, Mudd draws on the mythology of the golem to tell a story about queer and Jewish identity and the experience of feeling out of place in your own body. I myself am neither queer nor Jewish, so I imagine that some of the context went over my head. But I still got a lot out of it. The themes of wanting to be loved and accepted, searching for a place where you belong, and feeling uncomfortable with your body are, well, it might be overgeneralizing to call them universal, but I think many people wrestle with these questions. Mud, Agola memoir, can be played quickly if that's what you want. I'd say a half hour to 45 minutes, even with the optional prompts. But it's a much better experience if you take your time. Stop and think about what's happening in the story and what it means to you and take breaks when it gets too intense. Because it does get intense. While I did all the optional prompts, there was one prompt that, even though it was not optional and in fact was crucial to the story, I did not do it. I just couldn't bring myself to. This is the point in a review when I would normally talk about why it's fun. I even have a little outline to help me get started writing reviews, and why it's fun is one of the bullets. But I can't call Mud Agola Memoir fun. I don't think it's supposed to be. Fun isn't the goal of this game. Its goal is to give you a framework to think through difficult questions about identity, purpose, and acceptance. While I played Mud, a golem memoir, I kept thinking about Dysphoria, a flash game by Anna Anthropy that I played about eight years ago. Dysphoria told the story of Anthropy's transition, and while the ending is upbeat, much of the playthrough is intentionally uncomfortable. I'd never heard of the concept of Dysphoria before playing that game. But Anthropy's weary frustration was palpable. Dysphoria and Mud, a golem Memoir look very different, but evoke similar feelings for me. Like Dysphoria, Mud, a golem Memoir wants you to be uncomfortable. You identify with the golem. It's you, after all. And when the golem suffers, it feels very real. You want the golem to triumph in the end. I wanted that very badly. But this game isn't about winning. It's about acceptance. A fresh start that honors what came before. So, is Mud A Memoir a game? I'm still not sure. On the continuum of game to not a game, I think it's the furthest out there of anything I've reviewed for the 5-by. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. Mud A Memoir is an emotional experience, and on those terms, it's powerful. To be honest, this review was hard for me to write because... What the game meant to me was so personal, it's kind of hard to talk about. This 36-page RPG slash zine slash thought experiment became something sad and beautiful and profound. And that's Mud Agola Memoir. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other innovative solo RPGs. Then I really want to hear from you. In 2019, I
4: reviewed a two-player game by Hat Games called Summoner Wars. You can find that review in episode 67. Summoner Wars was first released in 2009. It's a card-based game that is played on a board, and your cards represent the units of a themed army of fantasy characters, which is called a faction. For the next five years or so, Hat continued to release new faction decks and expansions for Summoner Wars. The additional content got more and more creative and complex over the years. With the release of Summoner Wars Alliances in 2014, the collection of factions, reinforcements, second summoners, and mashed-up factions was considered complete. Fast forward to 2021. This year, the designer of Summoner Wars and the founder of Plathat Games, Colby Douk, has come out with a second edition. I have been totally thrilled about this all summer, and it's really exciting for a lot of the longtime fans of this game. The new edition is not just a reprint or a reskin of the original, it's a total overhaul in a lot of ways. The basic rules have been revamped, and there is all new art by Martin Abel and Madison Johnson. Most of the factions are updated versions of the original factions, which is great for those of us who remember them. Plus, there is the occasional new faction. Within each deck, many of the card abilities and stats are different. Before I get into more detail with these updates, I'll give a quick overview of the basic elements of the game. Each faction has a leader called a summoner. When you add new units to the board during the game, that's called summoning, hence summoner wars. Your faction is battling the other person's faction, and specifically the object of the game is to destroy your opponent's summoner. All of the characters on your cards have a certain number of life points, a cost to summon them, an attack value, and a special ability. Attacks are resolved by rolling dice, so the more dice the better. The resource used to summon new units is called magic, and you can gain magic by discarding cards and by destroying your opponent's units. Your deck also contains event cards that you can either play for their effect or discard for magic. Now I'll get back to some comparisons. Summoner Wars has three types of units, common units, champion units, and summoner units. The first edition was very tactical, and the common units were pretty fragile. Often they would only last one turn, and then most of the board would be cleared. Given that you are feeding your opponent magic by playing fragile units, this often led to champion-heavy play, which sometimes felt predictable. In the second edition, common units have been beefed up, and their abilities are not as simplistic. This makes both hand management and the board state more strategic, and I have really been enjoying the new common units so far. There are a few other changes worth noting. In the first edition, oftentimes a defensive turtling strategy turned out to be superior to an offensive one, leading to stalemates in which whoever engaged first would be at a disadvantage. In the second edition, if you don't attack any of your opponent's cards on a given turn, your summoner receives a wound. I'm happy that that was addressed. Killing your own units for magic used to be an issue as well, including killing units from your starting setup on the first turn. In the second edition, you only get magic from destroying enemy cards. These types of things were often house-ruled in the original game, but it's a breath of fresh air to actually have them be part of the rules. The art in the second edition is lighter than the original. It's more whimsical and family-friendly looking. Not everyone is a fan of the new art, and it's an adjustment for the crusty old vets especially. I personally like it. I think it makes the game more lighthearted. The representation is noticeably better in the second edition, with more female characters overall and a wide range of skin tones across human factions. I'm also really pleased that everyone looks like they are genuinely ready for battle in whatever way is relevant to that faction, and that I can sit down to a game and immerse myself in the experience without having to put up with objectified characters. I can't wait to see the new factions they are coming out with. Plat Hat is aiming to add two new factions every three months. Summoner Wars 2nd Edition has a new browser-based app where you can play against an AI or play asynchronously against a friend or a stranger. There's also a Discord community where you can find opponents and talk about the game. The animations are pretty, and I think it's a great implementation. There is a free faction available every month. Joe Ellis, aka J. Arthur Ellis, is the person in charge of the app, and he has a blog on BoardGameGeek called Plat Hat Tech and Games where you can read about the latest updates. I feel like Summoner Wars 2nd Edition is everything I wanted the original Summoner Wars to be, and the app is icing on the cake. You can see some photos on my Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening! You've been listening to The Five Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5bygames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com/5bygames. Join our BGG guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here on the 5by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com/5bygames. Thanks for listening.